Good morning. Good to see you. Grab your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. And as you turn there, uh, I want to uh, just say something real quick to you. Uh, actually regarding something I said a couple of weeks ago. And uh, as you turn to Acts chapter 4, I need to apologize, actually, for something I said two weeks ago. So two weeks ago, uh, we gave a message, if you remember, that was on hospitality and love. It was out of Hebrews chapter 13, and we talked about how we want to be a church of hospitality. And in that message, to kind of give an illustration of that, I talked about how we want to be a church where people feel like it's, it's safe to wear shoes on the carpet. And uh, what I, I meant by that is I meant that we want to be a church where people can come just as they are and feel comfortable about that. But what I was actually implying by that statement, I didn't realize it, is I was implying that if you are someone who makes people take their shoes off when they enter into your house, <laughs> that you are being inhospitable. And uh, I have actually found out since then that, that actually culturally that's a very insensitive thing to, to uh, imply. Because there are actually some cultures where uh, taking off your shoes when you enter into the house has absolutely nothing with trying to keep the carpet clean. It has nothing to do with that. Instead, it actually is a sign of hospitality. And uh, you, some people make uh, people take their shoes off because it says to them, hey, we want you to feel comfortable. We want you to feel at home here. And so my, my comment was actually pretty culturally insensitive. And I want to apologize for that. Uh, that was not my intent, but, but it was, and so I'm sorry for that. And if I offended you, I want to let you know uh, I am sorry, and I, I would please, if, if you would forgive me, I, I would really appreciate that. And in the future, if there is anything like that that I say that offends you, not anything I say from the Word that, of God that offends you, because the Word of God is going to offend all of us from time to time, but if there's anything I say culturally that I'm not aware of that ends up being offensive, honestly, just, just email me, let me know, because I never want anything to get in the way of the gospel message. And for those of you who did email me, I want to thank you so much for the spirit in which you did it. It was so kind and gracious. It was really a model of how to do that. And so I, I want to thank you for doing that. So I want to get that out of the way as we begin here. Acts chapter 4 is where we are. I'm going to read our passage we're looking at today. It starts in verse 1, goes to verse 22, then we'll pray, and then we'll see what we have today. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is what we read. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming the, uh, in Jesus the name of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. Sorry. Verse 3, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, as was Caiaphas, John, Alexand John Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power and what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame, and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him, you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you now for this opportunity to turn our attention to your word, God. And Father, I would pray that the message that you want to be spoken here this weekend is what has got, acro- getting, got across, Father. I pray, God, that you would speak through me, Father. I pray that there were nothing that, w- that would come in the way of what you want to say, Father. And we pray that ultimately you would be pleased, you would be glorified through this time. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen. So we begin here today, we're going to put a phrase on the screen. And it's a phrase that I know is familiar to many of you. And uh, I want you to repeat this phrase after me, okay? The phrase is this, don't repeat it yet. The phrase is this, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. We're going to break this phrase into two parts, okay? So let's repeat the first part after me. Ready? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. No turning back, no turning back. Okay, again, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. One more time. This time don't sound like you're at a funeral. Ready? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. There you go. No turning back, no turning back. No turning back, no turning back. In today's message, I have some good news and I have some bad news. I have some good news and I have some bad news. What do you want to hear first, the good news or the bad news? And please say the bad news because that's how I practiced it. What do you want to hear first? Bad news. Thank you very much. The bad news is, men and women, according to every major recent study, Christianity, and along with that, the American church is on the decline in America. The bad news is, according to every major recent study, we are a dying breed because Christianity, and along with that, the church is on the decline in America. This is according to a book that was recently released called Churchless. And Churchless is a book that was put out by the Barna Group. And the Barna Group, in case you don't know, is an organization that has really devoted itself to studying trends in religion in the United States. And in their most recent study that they released, which they talk about in this book, they found some very disturbing statistics. And I want to share just a few of them with you. The first statistic they found is this. Uh, in their studies, they found that only 49% of Americans attend church at least once a month. Only 49% of Americans attend some sort of church, Catholic, Protestant, you name it, at least once a month. It's the first time since they have done that study that the number has dropped below 50%. In addition to that, but right along with it, they found the following. They found that the number of Christians who have not attended a church service in the past year, so that includes a major holiday like Christmas and Easter, the number of Christians who have not attended a church service in the past year has gone from 30% in the 1990s to 33% in the first 10 years of 2000, to 43% in the most recent study. So the number of Christians who have not attended a church service in the past year has grown exponentially over the last several decades. Now these two statistics alone would be disturbing, but as what is most disturbing is what happens when you break this down by age group. Because when you break this down by age group, here's what you find. You find that only, although only 28% of those ages 70 and above would describe themselves as non-Christians, that number jumps to 48% of those between the ages of 15 and 33. 48% of those between the ages of 15 and 33 would describe themselves as a non-Christian. What is so disturbing about that trend is that this is obviously the generation that's getting married. This is obviously the generation that's having kids. 
And if they're not Christians, they're not raising their kids in a Christian family. Which means over the next several decades, we can expect as our population ages, we can expect fewer and fewer Christians in the United States. Which means we can expect fewer and fewer people to sit in the seats of our churches. Which means that we can expect fewer people to donate of their time and resources to our churches. Which means that in the next several decades, we will see, if this trend continues, we will see the closing of many churches in the United States. And perhaps the increasing irrelevancy of Christianity in our nation. So that is the bad news. The bad news is, according to every major recent study, Christianity, and along with that, the church, is on the decline in America. That's the bad news. So if that's the bad news, what's the good news? Well, the good news, brothers and sisters, the good news is that none of this means anything to our God. The good news is none of this means absolutely anything to our God. That's the good news. We are beginning today a new sermon series, as you have heard, called Momentum. And I know I say this for every sermon series, and I know I say this for every sermon series, but, but I cannot think of a recent sermon series that I have been more excited to begin than this one. And the reason why is because this sermon series that we're beginning, it's all about defying the statistics. It's all about defying the odds. Here's what we're going to do over the next several weeks here at Friends Church, okay? There is a book in our Bible known as the book of Acts. It's the book I had you turn to. And the book of Acts is a book that is all about the first Christians. It's all about the first church. It's all about our brothers and sisters in Christ who lived 2,000 years ago. The book of Acts actually begins right after Jesus' death and resurrection. Actually, it begins right after Jesus ascends into heaven. And it ends 30 years later. It ends 30 years after that point. And it tells the history of the first 30 years of the church. And really what the book of Acts is all about is it's all about how against all odds, this tiny group of 120 people, that's, that's all that could be said was devoted to the Christian movement when it first started. 120 people, all of the same nationality, all gathered in the same city in, in Israel, the city of Jerusalem. It's all about how this group of 120 people over the course of 30 years grew into tens of thousands of people of all different backgrounds living all across the known world at that time. And it's all about how this tiny movement became what is still today, these statistics notwithstanding, what is still today the world's largest religion. And what we are going to do over the next several weeks is we're going to study how that happened. We're going to study how this church grew from this tiny little community and had the momentum and had the impact in the world that it still has today. And really what it comes down to, brothers and sisters, is it comes down to these commitments that these early Christians had. As you study the book of Acts, you see that there were some things that these early Christians, that this church was committed to, that allowed them to be the force for God, allowed them to be the force for good in this world. And each week that we gather together, we are going to look at one of these commitments. And we're going to study what it is that made the early church the early church. But I want to make it clear that this sermon series is not a history lesson. Our goal in this series is not just to be hearers of the word. Our goal is to be doers of the word. And so what we plan to do is as we look at these commitments... We're going to talk about how we're going to apply them here at Friends Church. We're going to talk about how we're going to apply them in our individual lives. Because I really believe that if we become even more about what the early church was about, I believe there is no reason to believe that God cannot do the same thing in 21st century North Orange County that he did in 1st century Jerusalem. 
I don't see any reason to believe that God can't do in the world right now what he did 2,000 years ago. And I see no reason to believe that God cannot win our nation back, maybe even win our world back for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that is why I'm so excited about this series. And as we uh, go into this intro message here, and that's what this uh, message is today, as we go into this intro message here, what I want to do is I want to lay the foundation for what we're going to look at in the next several weeks. Because I believe that in addition to these commitments that this early church had, I believe that there was one character the quality they had above anything else that really allowed them to be the force for God that they were, that really allowed them to be used by God in the way that they were used by God. And this character quality is what we find all over Acts chapter 4. The story that we're looking at today that I read a little bit ago, this, this story actually begins one chapter earlier in the book of Acts. It begins in Acts chapter 3. And in Acts chapter 3, we, we read that one day, very early on in the Christian movement, I'm talking less than two months after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, two men, a man by the name of Peter and a man by the name of John, and some of you may recognize them as two of Jesus' disciples who, after Jesus ascended into heaven, became really the leaders of the Christian movement. Two men one day, we're told, these two men, they're walking near the temple in Jerusalem. And as they're walking near the temple in Jerusalem, they come across a man who is disabled. And we're told that he has been disabled from birth. He, he cannot walk. He has been lamed from birth. And this man is relatively old in this day and age. He's, he's in his 40s. And practically every day of his life for 40 years, this man has been sitting at the temple begging for money to support himself because in this day and age he wouldn't be able to work. And so as Peter and John walk by this man, this man asks Peter and John for some money. And Peter and John say something amazing to this man. They say, listen, we don't have gold. And they say, we don't have silver. But here's what we do have. And in the name of Jesus, they command this man to walk. And guess what? He does. This man is healed of his disability. And Peter and John do for this man what they had seen Jesus do on countless occasions during his ministry on this earth. They perform a miracle. Well, as I said, this occurs in the temple in Jerusalem. On any average day in the first century, the temple was a very crowded place. And so there's a huge group of people who witness this miracle. And immediately they flock to Peter and they flock to John because they want to know about this power that Peter and John have. And they want to know more about this Jesus in whose name they healed. And so Peter and John see this large crowd gathered in front of them. And so they decide to take advantage of that. And they decide to preach what may be called an evangelistic sermon. They begin to tell this crowd about Jesus. Well, as we open up in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Acts, we see that among these group of people listening to Peter and John is another group of people who are not very pleased at what they're hearing. In verse 1, we read about the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees. And these were the religious authorities of this day. And they are not pleased at this message of Jesus that Peter and John are preaching. Why? Because some of you may know this, but this is the very group of people who were really responsible for Jesus' crucifixion. This is the very group of people who one night, about two months earlier, got together and decided that Jesus was dangerous and that he needed to be dealt with. And so they set into place a series of events that led to Jesus' execution. And no doubt, after Jesus was crucified, these people likely thought that the whole movement surrounding Jesus was going to die with them. But what they hear in the teaching of Peter and John is that the movement of Jesus hasn't died. It seemed to grow strength. And not only that, but the miracles that Jesus had performed during his lifetime, which, by the way, these religious authorities had attributed to Satan, these miracles were now being performed by Jesus' followers. And so they get concerned. 
And so they decide to do to Peter and John exactly what they did to Jesus. They arrest them. And they eventually make Peter and John stand before what was sort of the Jewish Supreme Court of that day, the Sanhedrin. And those of you who know your Bible know that the Sanhedrin is actually the court that basically sentenced Jesus to die. They're the ones who accused and convicted Jesus of blasphemy, which is what ultimately led him to the cross. And so as we see Peter and John standing before the Supreme Court, standing before the Sanhedrin, we're nervous for them. We're scared for them. Because listen, if their leader, if, if Jesus, the Son of God, could not successfully defend himself against this group of people, then what hope do these two fishermen have? And if these fishermen end up being executed, then what does that mean for, for this early Christian movement? And so as we see them stand before the Sanhedrin, we're a little bit nervous for them. And if you were Peter and John's lawyer at this particular moment, what is it that you would advise them? What counsel would you give them? Well, I know what logic would say. I know what common sense would say. Logic and common sense would say, Peter and John, whatever you do, don't talk about Jesus. Don't talk about Jesus to the very group that had him executed. Downplay your faith a little bit. If they ask you how you healed, say that you healed in the power of God. That's true, right? But whatever you do, don't mention Jesus. That's what logic would say. That's what common sense would say. But is that what Peter and John do? Well, let's pick it up again in verse 8 of this passage. Listen to this speech that Peter gives before the Sanhedrin. This is what we read. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness, you may want to underline that phrase because we'll come back to it, for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Uh-oh. It looks like Peter fired his lawyer, doesn't it? Because rather than downplay his faith here, what does Peter do? He sort of doubles down on his faith, doesn't he? I really think, brothers and sisters, I really think this is one of the greatest speeches in the entire Bible. And there are two things that stand out to me about this speech. First of all, as you see, it is all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. Rather than hide his faith in Jesus, Peter proclaims it as, as strongly as you can. In fact, there are three things that Peter says about Jesus. First of all, he says to the Sanhedrin, he says, listen, if you want to know the power in which I healed this man, then you need to know it was in the name of Jesus, the power of Jesus. Rather than hide his faith in Jesus, rather than take the easy way out and said, I healed in the power of God, Peter lays it out there. He says, I healed in the name of Jesus. And then he adds this, I love this in verse 10. Yeah, the same Jesus who you crucified. That's how he healed him. That's the first thing Peter says. Second thing Peter does is he makes it clear that this Jesus is now the cornerstone of his faith. And that's what you see in verse 11 when he says, Jesus is the stone which you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And many of your Bibles probably indicate that verse 11 here is actually a quote of an Old Testament psalm. And it is, Psalm 118, written hundreds of years before Jesus. And in Psalm 118, there's a story of a stone who a group of builders, they come across this stone and they end up deciding not to use it in their building project. 
But then another group of builders come across this very same stone. And not only do they decide to use this rejected stone in their building project, they decide to make it the cornerstone of their building project, which is the most important stone of any building because the cornerstone was the first stone that was laid. So it sets the direction for the whole rest of the building. And what the early Christians saw in Psalm 118 is a prophecy of Jesus. Here the religious authorities had rejected Jesus, but in rejecting Jesus, they didn't recognize that they were rejecting God, and God is now making Jesus the cornerstone of this whole new faith that God is building. So that's the second thing they make clear. They make clear that Jesus is the cornerstone of their faith. But it's the third thing that Peter says. This to me is the most brash. This is to me is what stands out to the, the most. Because Peter makes it clear that it's now only by putting your faith in this Jesus that you can be saved. This is what he says in verse 12 when he says salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And this statement stands out to me the most because remember who Peter is saying this to. He's not saying this to an ordinary group of Jewish people. He's saying this to the very people who had sentenced Jesus to die. He's saying to the Sanhedrin, listen, this man that you hated so much that you executed, just so you know, if you want to now be saved, if you want to now make it to heaven, you have to put your faith in this man. I mean, it's amazing what Peter says here. It defies common sense. It defies logic, right? Why would Peter talk about Jesus to this group of people? Well, the answer is obvious. It's because the message of Jesus is the only message that we have. The message of Jesus is the only message that we have. As Christians, we believe Jesus is God, right? He's the clearest representation of what God is like. And so there is, there is no way that we as Christians can proclaim any other message than the message of Jesus. In a couple of weeks, actually, we're going to see in this series that one of the commitments that the early church had was a, was a commitment to preach the gospel, to preach Jesus no matter what. And what we're going to see in that is that if we want to see the same, God do the same thing in our day that he did 2,000 years ago, that we have to be just as committed to Jesus as well. And we'll see that in a couple of weeks. But that's the first thing that stands out to me about this speech. It is all about Jesus. The second thing that stands out to me about this speech, and I've sort of already touched upon it, but I want to call it out. The second thing that stands out to me about this speech is just how bold Peter is, just how courageous Peter is. I mean, as you read Peter's words here, do you, do you sense any hint of apology in what he's saying? Do you sense any hint of fear? No, right? Peter is bold. Peter is unashamed. Peter is unapologetic. Peter is bold. Peter is unashamed. He is unapologetic. And we're not the only ones who notice that. Look at the Sanhedrin's response to Peter, verse 13. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, and that word courage can also be translated boldness, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Even the Sanhedrin can't make sense of this boldness. These guys are fishermen. They have at best a high school education. Their courage doesn't make any sense. And yet, here they have it. And as you look through the book of Acts, men and women, you see that the boldness of Peter and John is not just limited to, the, to them. All these early Christians, they all had the same boldness. They all had the same courage. And if you were to pin me down, and if you were to ask me, what is it that enabled God to grow the church the way that he did in its first several years? Uh, I think the answer I would give back to you is it's this right here. The early church was bold. The early church was courageous for the sake of Christ. And that's why they had the momentum that they did. 
You know, I mentioned at the beginning of this message that these statistics and trends that we're seeing today, that they just don't mean anything to God. And the reason I say that is, listen, if, if we think it, we have it tough in 21st century America, Christianity, then we have no idea what these early Christians were going through. Do you understand, men and women, do you understand how much early Christianity had going against it to prohibit it from, from getting off the ground? Do you understand how high the deck was stacked against these early Christians to, 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 to make Christianity any sort of movement whatsoever? That there is no bookie in Vegas in the first century, in first century Vegas, that would have put any money on Christianity becoming anything more than just a small movement of a few hundred people that died out within a few years. I mean, Christianity literally had nothing going for it in its early days. First of all, as I pointed out, Christianity was very small. 120 people. That's it. Only 120 people were committed to the Christian movement at its outset. To give you a perspective of that, this, this section right here, not even up there, just this wing right here, this holds 112 seats. The early Christian movement only had eight more people than there are seats in this section right here. It, it started out extremely small. Secondly, Christianity was unlike any faith that had ever existed up until that point. You know, Christianity was born in an age that almost required physical objects to represent your faith. Every religion had something like that. The Jewish faith out of which Christianity was born, they had the temple in Jerusalem, the house of God that people could travel to and people could point to. The Roman faith had statues and temples to their God literally all over the place. The Eastern religions had idols made out of stone and gold that they had carved and they had had in their homes and they had in their gardens that they worshipped. Christianity had none of that. Christianity didn't have a temple because they taught that every individual was a temple of God. Christianity didn't have statues. They didn't have, they didn't have uh, idols that they had carved because they were told those were blasphemous and they were told they were not necessary. They were told that you could go to straight to God directly. In fact, it's interesting to hear this, but the first Christians in Rome were often accused of being atheists, of having no God at all. Because when people would say, okay, where is your God? There is nothing they could point to on this earth to represent their God. So Christianity was unlike any other faith that had existed up until that point. And then the third thing that they had going against it is the early Christian beliefs were just considered strange. They were just considered off. They worshipped as their God, right? Not a man, but not just any man, a convict. Someone who had been sentenced to die by the religious authorities of the day. In addition to that, they, they believed that this man had raised from the dead, that he had come back from the dead. But by the way, you can't see him on this earth because he's now in heaven. How convenient, right? There were also some rumors of some strange practices that they did in their meetings. In fact, some of the early Christians were actually accused of being cannibals. You know why? Because people who had been to their meetings talked of this ceremony where they talked about eating the body and drinking the blood of their God, which is kind of weird when you think about it. And in an age where it was taught that there were many ways to God, these Christians taught, no, there's only one, and it's through this crucified Savior. I mean, Christianity had nothing going for it in its early days. And yet, look at what God did with it. Look at how God grew it. How? Well, I think there are a number of answers to that question, but I know that God couldn't have done it without their boldness. God couldn't have done it without their courage. And if there is one thing that I am afraid the church in America is lacking today, 
I think we're lacking that same sense of boldness. I think we're lacking that same sense of courage. You know, being a pastor, one of the things that I do is I like to listen to the sermons of, of, of other pastors at other churches because I like to get a sense of what's being taught these days in our churches. And sometimes that can be a very frustrating experience for me. Because to listen to some pastors teach at some churches, you almost get the impression that the mission that God has given the church in America is never to offend anybody. You almost get the impression that the mission that God has given the church in America is never to step on anybody's toes and to constantly apologize for what the word of God says and constantly apologize for the message of Jesus. And that frustrates me. Because what exactly are we apologizing for? As I was studying this passage, the verse that stood out to me more than any is is verse 12, which talks about salvation only being in the name of Jesus. And if that verse is true, then what that tells me is that there are a lot of people in this world who are not saved. That there are a lot of people in our nation who we're not going to see in heaven. Really what that verse tells me is that verse tells me is that there is a sickness and there is a disease that has permeated this world and we Christians, we have the only solution to it. We have the only antidote to this disease. Now let me ask you, why would we apologize for that? You've heard this analogy before, but it's a good one. Imagine you have a loved one dying of cancer. And one day you stumble across the cure for cancer. You're, you're in your backyard and you see this mysterious plant grow and you know this is the cure for cancer. Now can you imagine discovering the cure for cancer, having the cure for cancer in your hand, and then seriously debating whether or not you're going to share it with your loved one who's dying? Because you know, you don't want to offend them. They may like their cancer. Maybe it's a part of their heritage. Maybe their mother and their grandmother and their great-grandmother all died of the same cancer, and so it's a part of their identity, and and you don't want to presume anything, right? You don't want to step on their toes. I mean, can you imagine seriously having that debate? And yet all the time we do that with the message of Jesus, don't we? Why is that? What is it that makes us so embarrassed about the message of Jesus Christ? What is it that makes us so fearful to share the message of Jesus with a world that needs it? These early Christians, they didn't have that embarrassment. They didn't have that fear. Why? I think you find your answer as you continue on in this passage. Jump down to verse 18 of this passage. So the Sanhedrin decide, as you continue on in this story, you read that the Sanhedrin decide that they're not going to arrest Peter and John anymore. They're going to let him go. But before they do, they issue Peter and John this warning. And you see the warning in verse 18. It says, Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they say, Peter and John, you can go, but you can't talk about Jesus anymore. Now, how do you think that's going to go over with Peter and John? (laughs) Not very well, right? Verse 19. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, verse 20, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Let me read verses 19 and 20 again. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him, you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now do me a favor. I want you to somehow mark verses 19 and 20 in your Bible. I want you to underline them. I want you to highlight them. Draw little pictures of kittens next to them. Whatever will make it stand out in your Bible, okay? Because there you see it right there. Why were these early Christians so bold? Why were they so fearless for the sake of Christ? It's obvious, isn't it? Because they were sold out for Jesus. 
Because they were committed to Jesus above all else. I mean, what Peter and John are saying, verses 19 and 20, is Sanhedrin, we don't care if it kills us, we are going to proclaim Jesus no matter what. These early Christians were committed to Jesus no matter what, and that's what led to their boldness. And I'm just not sure the same can always be said of us. You know, as I have examined my own uh, Christian life and my own struggles at time with boldness, here's what I found. I have found that, listen, I, I want to follow Jesus with everything inside of me. I do. But as I've also found that there are some other things I want in this life as well. I, I, I want to be well-liked. I want a good reputation. I want to be well thought of. I, I don't want people to think that I'm weird. And I know that every single time that I am seated next to someone, whether it's a stranger or someone I know, and I'm given the opportunity to share Jesus with them, I know that I risk all these things. And I'm afraid to say that sometimes these things get in the way of my commitment to Jesus. And in these conversations, you're sometimes very bold pastor on Saturday night and Sunday morning. I become anything but bold. And if we're going to win America back for Christ, we have to get over that. We have to overcome that. And that's why as we begin this new sermon series here at Friends Church, I want to issue to all of you a challenge. And this is a challenge that, that I would ask that you, you consider doing sometime before this series ends. This will be about two-month series. So sometimes before this series ends. And, and the challenge is this. Every single one of us has someone in our life that doesn't know Jesus. You know who that person is. It's the person who always comes to your mind when we talk about this. And the reason that person always comes to your mind, I believe, is that God has placed that person in your life and God has placed you in their life because he, he wants to use you to tell them about Jesus. And so before the end of this series, the challenge I have, if we want to see America won back for Christ, this is going to have to happen. The challenge I have is this. Would you take a step out and would you share Jesus with them? And I want to warn you, it, it may risk your reputation. It, it may risk you being well-liked by that person. It may even risk your relationship with that person. Sometimes that happens. But you know what? That person is dying of cancer. They're dying of sin. And we have the solution. And if you're struggling with how exactly to, to reach them, can I offer you this suggestion? Why, why don't you follow the, the example of Peter and John in this passage? And what do I mean by that? Well, remember how all this started. It started with a miracle, yes, but remember what Peter called it in verse 9. I had you underline that phrase. It started with an act of kindness. Peter and John were kind to this man, and that's what gave them the opportunity to share about Jesus. And more often in the book of Acts, that's exactly what you find. You read through the book of Acts, and as you read all the evangelistic sermons, if you look a couple of verses before that, you will see more often than not that every sermon is preceded by an act of kindness, an act of a good deed to someone. And there's a reason for that. The reason why is, listen, people can argue with our views about Jesus. They can argue with scripture. They can argue with our views on matters. But you know what they can't argue with? They can't argue with good works. They can't argue with good deeds. You want to reach that friend? You want to reach your coworker? You want to reach your office? You want to reach your school for Christ? Here is a novel idea in the next couple of weeks. Be ridiculously nice to those people. Be ridiculously kind to those people. 
As you're headed into work tomorrow morning, why don't you text your office mates and say, hey, I'm going to Starbucks. Can I pick up anything for anybody? My treat. When you know that someone in your office is going through a difficult experience, why don't you go up to them and say, hey, I know you're going through a tough time. If you want to, I just want to let you know I'm here to talk to you about that. In fact, I'll take you out to lunch and we can talk about it. My treat. This week, why don't you buy your, your boss, your coworkers, your employees, uh, your, your daughter's teacher, your son's new coach, the, the guy who makes your sandwich at Subway, why don't you buy him a gift card and say to them with a little note, hey, thanks for all that you do. God bless you. And just be really nice to these people. And if you do that, and if you consistently do that, here's what you're going to find. Eventually, they're going to ask you why. Why are you doing this? And that's an opportunity for you unapologetically and unashamedly to say, because Jesus tells me to. And there you have your foot in the door to share about Jesus. That's how America is going to be won back. It's going to be won back one conversation at a time. It's going to be won back one soul at a time. As I was preparing for this message in this sermon series over the last couple of weeks, I had two thoughts come through my mind at the same time. The first thought was this. I have never been more hopeful for the church than I am right now, truly. Because I was reminded all of what I said earlier. Statistics, trends don't mean anything with God. All God needs is 120 people. 120 people committed to him. In this church, I know we have 10 times that number. So I have never been more hopeful for the church in America than I am right now. But the second thought I had is this. I've never felt the urgency more than I have right now. Let's be honest, men and women, our nation is a mess. It is a mess. And I say to you unapologetically and unashamedly, our nation needs us. It needs us because our nation needs Jesus. And what is the church? We are the body of Christ. And so our nation needs us. But guess what? Satan knows that. And that's why Satan is going after the church. That's why he's trying to shut the doors on as many churches as possible. Where guess what? We are not going to let that happen here. But it's going to take all of us to make sure that that doesn't happen. And so I go back to the statement that I had you say at the beginning. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And my question is this. Is this the cry of our hearts, men and women? Is this the cry of our hearts? Are we willing to, to lay down our pride? Are we willing to lay down our, uh, uh, stop living for ourselves? Are we willing to, to stop living in fear of what people will say when we try and give them the only solution to eternal damnation? Are we willing to stop living in embarrassment and fear of the message of Jesus? And are we willing to sacrifice what it takes, our reputation, our time, our resources, to further not our own kingdom, but to further the kingdom of God and to further the reputation of Jesus Christ? Are we willing to say, not just with our lips, but with our lives, I have decided to follow Jesus. There is no turning back. There is no turning back. Is this the cry of our hearts? Well, if it is, could you do me a favor? Could you stand with me right now? If you are a follower of Jesus, would you stand with me and repeat after me? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Again, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. 
Let's say it together. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. This week, men and women, let's live this out and let's see God take back our nation for Jesus Christ.